Good afternoon and welcome to the 47th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about maintaining dignity for the dead in a pandemic with New York Times contributing writer, Maggie Jones. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear the COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. On Wednesday, I will talk about COVID-19, climate change, and the Green New Deal with Billy Fleming, from the University of Pennsylvania, Kate Marvel from the NASA Goddard Institute in Columbia University, and Franco Montalto from Drexel University. As of today, May 19th, 2020, there are 4,872,308 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 4,775,000 cases reported yesterday. 1,520,029 of those are in the United States, up from 1,500,753 yesterday. There are now a total of 91,187 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 90,312 yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Marilyn Alston, 89, was a teacher and social worker, written by Valerie Russ, Philadelphia Inquirer, May 15th. More than anything, Marilyn Dolores Baker Alston enjoyed family gatherings. She loved her family beyond measure. That was her purpose in life, said daughter Suzanne Hodges. Beyond her actual family, however, former students, her children's friends, and the children of her friends considered her a second mother. They called her Mama A, or Mommy Alston. She was a longtime teacher, social worker, and geriatric specialist who was committed to helping others. Even late in life, as she had her own health issues, she would call and ask me if I could help someone else, said Kenneth Scott, president of Beach Companies, a community service group. Mrs. Alston, 89, of Abington, died Saturday, May 2nd, of complications of COVID-19 at Abington Hospital Jefferson Health. Mrs. Alston was the widow of former Philadelphia School Board President and Beach Company's CEO, Floyd W. Alston. They were married for 62 years until his death in 2012. She poured her whole life into her family, Hodges said. For everyone she loved, she poured her resources, her time, and her wisdom. The core essence of who she was was love. Born in Philadelphia in 1930, Mrs. Alston was the eldest of four children of Maud Evangeline Muldrow and Edward Marshall Baker. Her father was the founder of Baker Funeral Home, once a prominent Philadelphia mortuary for three generations. Her grandfather, Samuel Baker, had been a pastor in the AME Church. Mrs. Alston graduated from Philadelphia High School for Girls in 1948. Mrs. Alston earned a master's degree in social work with gerontology certificate from Temple University when she was 56. Mrs. Alston taught at Philadelphia public schools and also taught learning impaired children at their homes. She paused her career as her parents and her husband's parents aged to care for them. 
That experience led her to earn her master's in social work with a gerontology certificate from Temple when she was 56. She also took courses at Thomas Jefferson University and the University of Pennsylvania. My mother was a dynamic service-oriented person who raised us to be service-oriented and to be caring about others, said her son, Craig Edward Floyd Alston. My guest today is Maggie Jones. Maggie is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. She also teaches writing at the University of Pittsburgh. Maggie, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. I'd like to remind people that you can get questions in. You can get questions into the YouTube live chat. You can email them to me directly sgk23 at drexel.edu. I know some people like to do that, or you can put them up on Twitter and just be sure to tag at US of disaster. So Maggie, I've been starting these calls by asking people how they're doing, where they are. So let's start that way. Where are you and how are things going there? Well, first of all, I love how you open the show. So I'm feeling a little moved by that and, um, and the importance of telling individual stories in this. Um, I'm in Pittsburgh. I um, am home with two restless teenagers and a husband who works about four feet away from me. And, um, you know, as a, as a writer, I, um, I work at home a lot, but in the last year or so I had moved into co-working space and was pretty deliriously happy about that. So I'm, I'm back, back home, but easier to be back home than it is for a lot of people. Um, so I'm hanging in there. And your teenagers have been home from school now for, for a long time. A long time. <laughs> Early March, uh, I think. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's its own. Everybody has their own challenges, but for, you know, social teens, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. So you wrote this um, really amazing New York Times magazine piece, which we've been talking about on here for the last couple of, of sessions. And the title was, How Do You Maintain Dignity for the Dead in the Pandemic, May 14th. It came out in the Times. And I, I, want, I want to talk with you about this today in detail. And would you mind just starting us off by reading some of that? piece, any, anything you'd like to read to take us into that, into that sure. world that you were reporting sure. on? I'll, um, I'll, I'll uh, read the lead of it. <clears throat> Nick Ferenga stood among the body bags in a refrigerated 18-wheel trailer at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center in Manhattan. This, sorry about that. Um, this is, this is him, a hospital worker said, pointing to a white body bag among the roughly 40 others lying on wooden platforms that resembled hastily constructed bunk beds. As a funeral director in the Bronx, Ferenga has spent two months on the front lines of COVID-19, picking up dozens of bodies. Yet somehow, until that day in late April, he had escaped the pain of retrieving the body of someone he loved. Philip Folia was Ferenga's former Little League coach. He and his brother, Sal, played baseball with Folia's sons. The families lived just blocks apart. Their fathers were longtime friends. In the trailer, Ferenga squatted down next to a lower platform. With his gloved hand, he pulled the double zippers down the body back, bag to Folia's waist, where his hands were folded. Ferenga checked his hospital ID wristband before pulling the zippers up. 
Oh, Phil, he said in a hushed voice when he saw his former coach's face. For much of his career, Folia, who was 69, was a lawyer for the city, state, and federal governments investigating and prosecuting public corruption. Ferenga knew Folia had been in the hospital for more than a month, most of that time on a ventilator. Several days earlier, he had transferred out of the ICU, but then one infection set him back and another until his heart gave out. In the trailer, Ferenga, wearing an N95 mask and medical gown, wrapped his arms around Folia and the body bag and hoisted him onto a stretcher to bring him home, to bring him to the funeral home. That's the lead. What a, uh, just a crushing uh, way to begin that story. And you go on to, to really tell us what it's, what this sort of global pandemic has been like in this one in this one place, a quite remarkable place. So tell us about the Ferenga brothers, Nick and, and Sal, and tell us about what it's been like for them to run a, a funeral home at this time. So they are fifth generation um, family funeral home owners, which is saying something. Um, I found a bunch of funeral home directors that were fourth generation, which is pretty impressive too, but so they've been doing this as a family for a very long time, um, since the turn of the last century. And um, they're pretty young, Sal's um, 40, and I think Nick is about 36, And but they grew up in this business. Um, they did not grow up with their father saying, this is what you must do. He really mm-hmm. felt like you have to sort of have a heart for this. And, um, and you know they've never experienced anything like this. They're in the Bronx, which last I knew had the highest um, per capita rates of um, COVID in New York City. Um, and um, you know they serve a pretty diverse population. Um, um, so um, and and diverse in terms of funeral rituals. So. Um, you know, and we can talk more about this, but maintain, trying to keep some sense of that during all of this has been incredibly hard and hectic for them. Five generations. Uh, there was a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer about a third generation funeral home and in the obituary that I read also, there's right, that right. allusion to, um, is that pretty common then that this this business is handed down among families or I guess in their family, this really special to be passed along. Right. This generation is unusual. And there are lots of family funeral homes, um, you know, but at some point, some of them get sold off because it's actually a fairly hard way to make a living. Um, Mm. And there's a big um, corporate owner of a big, a lot of funeral homes called SCI that um, is my sort of consumer be aware. Um, it can, uh, an SCI corporate funeral home could still be called the Ferengo brothers. The Ferengos are, they are the owners, not SCI. But so there are a lot of funeral homes that still sort of appear to be family funeral homes that are not. Um, and, um, so fifth generation, fifth generation is unusual. Um, and you know, still there, there are more family funeral homes than not, but few that go that far back. And so there must be families in that neighborhood also who, I don't know if the families have been with them for five generations, but I mean, this relationship among the community and the funeral home must be tight. Yeah, I mean, they started off, you know, uh, late 1890s in Little Italy and then moved up to Harlem and then moved to the Bronx. Um, But, you know, and as those neighborhoods changed, 
some Italians and Italian funeral homes often left neighborhoods and they have sort of stuck around. Um, but yes, they're both a lot of um, Italian families who've been there also for generations plus newer immigrants. Mm -hmm. So in the story, um, when, as you were sort of doing the reporting, how did they describe becoming aware that something really unprecedented was happening? What does that look like from mm -hmm. the perspective of inside the funeral home? So, you know, mid-March, um, it's fairly normal. There's some uptick, but not a whole lot. I mean, um, issues of stay-at-home orders. Um, they sent some of their staff home, like their bookkeeper and their secretary initially. She couldn't bear being home and came back and was really working on the front lines too. Um, and slowly it began increasing. And by the by April 1st, they could no longer answer their phones. The phones were ringing as much as a hundred times a day. And, you know, when I was talking to them in later April, it was just like, even then, you know, you just hear the constant hum of the phone, which, you know, after a couple of rings now went over into the answering service. Um, and it was around that time. Um, and, I talk about this in the story that they sort of, you know, for the last couple of generations, at least they had been very proud of never turning away a family, that they found ways to make room and to serve families. And especially they are very big on serving families in their community. That's super important to them. Um, but by early April, they had had to turn down their first family, which devastated them. And then it was just constant. And they had, by the end of the month had turned away 200 families. And they had converted um, to a casket room and a um, the smaller of their chapels into morgues because lots of funeral homes in New York, you know, funeral homes, real estate is expensive. They don't have a lot of land, but lots of funeral homes only have a couple of refrigerated spaces. And we don't think about these things. We don't ask those questions. And usually, you know, in many places, you know, you want a cremation for Tuesday, you can get a cremation for Tuesday and you don't have to have a lot of refrigerated space for bodies, but they were overwhelmed and didn't want to, you know, just say no, absolutely, especially in the community. Um, but there was a limit to how much even turning down the air conditioning and creating these makeshift morgues, how many, just how many you can handle mm -hmm. sort of to process at the same time. And the cemeteries, backed up. The crematories are still really backed up. Um, this week, I believe, at least at the beginning of the week, um, we're still kind of in the beginning of the week, um, uh, there were still 3,000 bodies waiting to be cremated, mm -hmm. which really gives you a perspective on, you know, there was a four-week waiting um, time for funeral homes um, at some point in April. And so, you know, how do you keep those bodies and have them wait in line? You can't do it without creating enormous refrigerated space. I mean, it's a whole connection, set of connections that we, as you said, we don't think about, we don't talk about between from, from hospital to the funeral home, to the crematory um, and, to the, or to, and or to the cemetery. And so, but you do talk about how they, how they manage that in the moment, which I found a fascinating part of it. So part of it is they have friends and other Part of the state oh, or that was a great, at the same time they were actually had been thinking about this um 
funeral home that had a crematory. Um, Nick and Sal had, had interned there after mortuary school, and they were. It was in the back of their minds, like maybe we should start reaching out to somebody else. And the owners of that funeral home reached out to them and said, you know, they're in, outside of Binghamton not the same kind of crisis there. Um, they said, we can take bodies. We can do, you know, caravan of um, um, vehicles and take bodies up um, to cremate them there, which really made a big difference. And for Sal and Nick, who are very ethical and think carefully about this, they wouldn't have sort of allowed bodies to just go anywhere. Um, they knew how these people handled bodies. They had a relationship with them. So they then... Nick and Sal went to families to ask permission. Is it okay to have the, your loved one cremated um, elsewhere? And that helped a lot. But it, you know, it takes a lot of creative thinking. Funeral homes are not prepared for. I mean, even with 9/11, you didn't have so many bodies to bury, right? And so, um, so the backlogs and space and all those things have demanded a lot of creativity for funeral homes. So I'm sure they've never seen anything like this, but you did mention 9-11. Are there other times like seasonal flu time or sort of other moments that they could think of or point to when they had seen, I mean, five generations, uh, but I guess, you know, funerals, I'm thinking of military funerals, they wouldn't have managed those. I'm just trying to, you know, go to grasp for other moments. Yeah, that they, they were not, it was their father who was um, running the funeral home during the AIDS um, crisis. Mm -hmm. And they actually, Sal was going back to look and he, I, I think he didn't have time or he didn't see anything that stuck out to him to look, um, at 1918 records. So they mm. have family records on the funeral home going way back. Wow. Um, and I can't remember if he didn't have time to thoroughly look at it or if things didn't stick out to him. Cause I, he asked me for the numbers on how many people died in New York city. And of course it was enormous. Um, but, um, so nothing like this, nothing like this. I mean, I think they handled a handful of funerals for 9-11 um, and it was just a completely, you know, it was a completely different thing. So this is unlike anything in their history. You were talking about the their own sort of ethical practice. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because you talked about you know, turning the chapel into, into a morgue. I'm not sure I even understand what that what that means or what they have to go through to say, okay, we can do that. Right. So it basically means keeping the room cold. Okay. So they turn down the temperature to 55, right? What you're worried about. So they, they embalm bodies. They actually embalm at higher rates in some funeral homes because of, of the populations they serve um, who want embalming. Um, you know, cremation is on the rise, but, but I think this is a typically more traditional neighborhood where, they do more cremations and burials than they do cremation. I mean, sorry, more embalming and burials than they do cremations. But um, so you've got to store unembalmed bodies at a cool temperature so they don't completely decompose. So they've got it set to, you know, the lowest temperature they can around 55 and they have a dehumidifier. And so in, there's a photo in the story of um, the small chapel and it's a combination of cremation, people in cremation containers. You don't see the people in cremation containers and um, people in um, more traditional um, caskets and it's space for bodies, but it's cool space for bodies, which, you know, is less important with embalming and very important with unembalmed bodies. Mm. Um, 
So they've never had that kind of overflow before. I mean, the small chapel at one point had like 45 bodies in it. And then, and then the, um, their casket display room, a handful more on top of that. Let's talk about the embalming. You mentioned that they do that at a higher rate than other funeral homes. And you talk in the piece about what that, what that means and maybe the personal risks to them of doing that. Can you share yeah. a little bit about, about yeah. that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. The WHO says don't embalm. Uh, the CDC says it's okay with precautions. I mean, the WHO is speaking to a worldwide audience where, you know, they may not have as much PPE to do embalming. Um, and I think, you know, Sal, who is the person who does the most embalmings there, he, he was somebody who thought he would never do many embalmings and he didn't really like it, but then sort of having to do it and in a, you know, for, I can't remember if it was for somebody, it was for a young girl or something who was badly disfigured. You know, I think he felt like there was really an art to doing so and that it's been helpful to that family. And so now he does a lot of it. So he's suited up in PPE, you know, he's got a Tyvek suit on and, and a plastic apron over that and um, gloves, plastic gloves and a face shield and an N95 mask under that. Um, you know, there's concern, there's just so much concern about what we don't know, right, about COVID-19 and um, how long um, it may stay alive, you know, in somebody's throat or nose. And so he takes alcohol. I watched two embalmings. One was of a COVID victim and one wasn't. But so he takes alcohol and a paper towel to cover. They they disinfect the mouth and nose and all that and eyes. And then he covers it. Um, there's concern like if you're jostling the body, which can also happen during the pickup of a body, right? That mm -hmm. So they're in full PPE for that as well. Um, so it is a risk and Sal's very clear, I think partly because he thinks it's his mission to families who've wanted it. And I think other funeral homes have said, sorry, you know, we, we're not gonna take that risk. We're not gonna take a risk of holding viewings. But Sal and Nick have really felt like as much as they can, they wanna give families what they want and what they've expected. And, you know, one could debate endlessly whether that's a good idea or not, but I mean, it's, they're sort of taking on the risks and, you know, nobody's saying you absolutely can't do it. I think some funeral home directors have said, you're crazy. Why take the risk? You don't have to, but they do. But the the viewings, so the state has allowed them to continue those? Yes. You're allowed to have 10 people at a viewing. So, um, you know, their viewings are very, um, I mean, yeah, that's complicated too. I mean, they've had people try and come in with 20 and 30 people sometimes. Sure. Um, and, um, and they have to disinfect the room for an hour in between each viewing. The chairs are all spaced far apart and, um, and you can have an hour at a viewing. And Sal and Nick don't hang around a lot, which also goes against their nature, right? You're there for the family the entire time, mm -hmm. but they need to cut down on their risk and the family's risk. So they sort of, you know, somebody shows them into the room and then they're kind of gone. So they've had- they're allowed to do it. So they've had to change the practices of how they work. They've also had to change the practices of how they interact with these families. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine the stress and strain that you encountered and witnessed. How are they, how do they cope with this? 
I think they cope in the way that, you know, look, they have been, it's gotten better, obviously, but, it, you know, they've been working six days a week, 15, 16 hours. They have a young funeral director who I think she's about 24. And then they have somebody that they um, hired who had left the funeral industry and I think opened some kind of business, which was then shut down during the pandemic. Um, but they were already short staffed. Um, so, um, I think, you know, they really, and I think it really helps to in doing this work is they really feel like they have a mission and they have a mission to their community. And when they can help people beyond the community, they do that. But um, I think they go on a lot of adrenaline and, um, and it's all very foreign to them. They're really used to interacting with families. They're really used to you know, trying to give families what they want. Nick talks about that. He said, you know, it's not that there's a right way and a wrong way, but I, what I do is I provide families what they want. And you just can't do that. I mean, you know, it's not just in the funeral industry. Obviously this is in so many ways, it's in hospitals and other ways. And I think, you know, I talked to Sal the other day and he's like, all I want is a vacation. I don't need to go anywhere. I just need to rest. And, you know, I think they see, some, you know, I wouldn't say end, some at least temporary um, calming down going on now and whether that lasts, who knows. And you've mentioned that the neighborhood that they're in has changed. I mean, all New York neighborhoods are are uh, diverse compared to the rest of the country. What does that that mean for them? And they, so they're they're serving families who come from a wide variety of backgrounds. I'm assuming socioeconomic, but also religious yes. traditions. Yes. How does that actually play out? So, um, so the neighborhood you know that used to be largely Italian is now they've got families. You know, and, and, and in the old days, that used to be, if you're Italian, you go to the Italian funeral home. I mean, that's certainly still true a lot um, for Black funeral homes and Jewish funeral homes, but not so much for everybody else. And um, so they serve Vietnamese, Guyanese, um, Puerto Ricans, they have a big Puerto Rican population. Um, I wrote about a Sikh family along with Irish um, and Italian. And, you know, those traditions are all... I mean, there's a lot of overlap with many of them, but you know, for a lot of Buddhists and Sikhs, um, they will do witness cremations, which you know weren't really a thing um, years ago in the United States. I mean, the funeral industry looked completely different. I mean, we used to just keep bodies at home and bury them ourselves in the backyard or in the local cemetery. So lots mm -hmm. of things have changed, but cremation rates have gone way, way, way up um, in the last decades, and. Um, so, you know, they've got their sort of traditional, uh, Sal told me a great story, um, of, a, having, I don't know when this was, but having two funerals in two different chapels, not during the pandemic at once. One was an Irish family and one was an Italian family. And he said, the Irish family was like, why are they so loud? And the Irish family was like, what's wrong with the Italian family over there? They're so quiet. Um, so, you know, Lots of cultures have lots of different um, mourning rituals, but pretty much we all have mourning rituals, right? And that's one of the things that's so hard about this, that we all have, we may have different ways of tending to and burying our dead, but we do something and we do something as communities typically. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's no witness cremations. Um, 
cemeteries in the New York City area vary from, I think there's one New Jersey cemetery they went to where it was one person could go. Mm -hmm. Um, And then others, one, you can only, you have to stay in your car and you can roll down the windows and others, it's, it's, you know, up to 10. Mm. You're listening to COVID Calls and my guest is Maggie Jones, contributing writer for the New York Times. And we are discussing um, death and dying and dignity and this tremendous article that she wrote about the Fringa Brothers uh, funeral home in New York City. So the title of the article does reference dignity. And I, and I wanted to pick that up as a theme because even what you were just talking about, um, the kinds of experiences people are, are able to have or not have now around grieving, around saying goodbye, are all wrapped up in this notion of what a dignified, what a good death is like. I guess, what did you learn in reporting this, this story that may have changed the way you think about that? Or what mirror can you hold up to our society right now about what, how we may be changing in our ideas of what dignity means in this moment? Yeah, I mean, so Sal talks about dignity for him as partly, you know, his thing is, you know, if I have to put a dead body on the floor, I'm closing down. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, told me also about you know, picking up bodies from this really disorganized um, refrigerated trailer early on that, you know, really depressed him as he told me about it. It was clear it really got to him. And I, and, you know, there are a couple of reader comments on the New York Times story where it's like, who cares, right? You're gone. It's just a body, but we do tend to care. And that is really, um, I wouldn't say I know that it's universal across cultures, but we, we care about death rituals, um, in most cultures and, and perform them and care about the body. We don't tend to throw bodies to the wolves. Um, and, and so when when our practices are restricted, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in coming out of this story and, and even going into it just wasn't really space in this story to explore it as much as, so what do we do? And I think, I think we will have new forms, um, partly because we may have to have new forms for a very long time and partly because death rituals do change over time. And, um, you know, in India, a, that Sikh family may have had a funeral pyre and they're not doing that here, but they do a witness cremation, which is a close um, um, replica of it and has a lot of the same symbolism. And, and you know, I was struck by, I hadn't heard about this before, but um, they serve a lot of Italian families. And one of the things that they do, it's an old Italian tradition, I guess, is to stop by the deceased's home before mm-hmm. proceeding to... Um, the, the cemetery. And I, I sort of love that idea. Like, you know, we, they would just sort of stop for a minute um, with the hearse in front of the home. And, and in some cases, and this is more of a COVID thing, there would be people lining the block um, to wave off the person. And, and, and I just thought, you know, that's, there's something really lovely about it. Another piece of um, of a story that didn't get in the article was, um, I think it was a basketball coach who had died and Sal wasn't even expecting this. He pulls out of um, the parking lot of the funeral home to go to the cemetery and the streets lined for a couple blocks with um, people who'd played on his teams over the years. And, um, and then there was, um, 
um, Phil Folio's son in the story told me that he actually, it's too bad, this is actually going to be a part of at least a picture caption at one point, but it wasn't in there, but but that he found some relief in not having the performative funeral hmm. where there are lots of people, you know, his father was really prominent in the Italian American community and lots of people would have come up very politely and with all good intentions saying, oh, I loved your dad and your dad was great. And, you know, he wouldn't have known half of them. And, and there is something, mm. I mean, having lost people who are dear to me, there is a performative aspect and some people love that, but it does make you think about, right. What, what is actually works in these traditions and what doesn't work. And I think it's too early to know exactly what will come out of it. Um, there was also a beautiful, um, New York Times the daily podcast about a man in Canada who did this Zoom funeral, which to me always seems like oh, a Zoom funeral, but it sounded beautiful the way it was done. And a lot of it was impromptu. And um, I was really struck by the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that he dressed up in a suit for it and wore shoes that were a bit too tight as a sort of reminder of this is this solemn, not comfortable. Um, occasion. And so, you know, I think, I think we'll see what, what can be, what sort of good things we can find from this because there's so much loss in it. And some of those traditions are super important and, um, and they're not so easy just to say, oh, well, we have to get rid of them. It's interesting that you're saying that um, the baseball coach's son, Phil, felt some relief that he didn't have to have I wouldn't have thought I wouldn't have thought of that. I was thinking more about the kind of conflicts that may already have happened or or may continue to happen. People pushing funeral homes or like, like you said, like too many people want to come in the room. Yeah. Too many people want to show up at the cemetery. Yeah. Um, I don't I mean, is, have you seen or does that I concern you? Or? I mean, no, I at least the stories that um, the Ferenga brothers told me, you know, that people did try to come in extra people, but they understood that they couldn't. And, you know, in that, in the story, um, of the Puriwal family, um, they actually created an exception that was such a big and such a tight knit family that they created sort of two viewings with an hour in between. And, um, but, you know, I mean, I haven't seen that from reporting on that funeral home, but it is not hard to believe that at your lowest moment in losing somebody, when you've had a parent or a spouse in the hospital for a month when you could not see them, that you might very well take it out on the funeral director because you've got so much grief and so much anger and frustration going on. Did you see Elizabeth Warren's piece in the Atlantic. It came out just a couple of days ago and gets right to this point about her brother. I have not read it yet. Uh, okay. Well, it's, um, you'll, uh, it'll be poignant for you, but it gets to this thing that, that she talks about in it. And for anybody who hasn't read it, it, I really recommend it. It was her oldest brother who died. Right. And they don't talk about the funeral aspect of it. She talks about this, um, him being in the hospital and that distance. And the thing that she worried about um, so much was that he was alone. And and I wonder, you know, so we've been talking about one part of this, but it really, I guess it's a linked sort of a trauma for families yes. to not be able to have 
that connection in the time before death and then also be barred that connection. Ferenga's notwithstanding, what they're doing is tremendous, but to be barred that connection after too. Um, yeah. it, seem, it seems too much. It's too much. It's too much. I mean, I cannot imagine it. I, you know, um, you know, as I said in that story, Phil Folia was in the hospital for over a month. And so his wife couldn't see him, his kids couldn't see him. And yeah, I think they're, they're really linked. And, you know, you read these stories about nurses and doctors doing their best to get families on the phone to sort of take care of people in the hospital to, but you know, there's just no substitution to having, you know, the people you love hold your hand um, when you're dying. And we don't all get to do that anyway in life, but um, it's, I think, you know, the kind of grief and trauma that goes on from this is enormous. And, you know, and then you've got the whole other layer of, and harder to get help for people who have gone through this trauma and not been able to say goodbye to their loved ones in ways they, you know, totally would expect and understandably expect in any other time. That's what makes this disaster so different from so many others we've experienced kind of collectively, I think, over the last 20 years. In, in some ways, it does feel kind of resonant with 9-11 in that, you know, there were a lot of missing bodies there, too. Like, we couldn't. Right. Not only families, but societally. I mean, people watched on TV the buildings coming down, and then they were like, "Well, we were kind of used to seeing." I mean, their journalistic practices about showing us the body, right. but we're used to seeing after disaster. That's some connection to the body, and we're not seeing it now. This is a disaster that's out of sight in yeah. some ways. I don't. I'm not asking you to develop some some deep theory here, but it's on my mind, like what might be the broader implications of us societally not being able to connect this disaster with real people. That's why your article, I think, is is so important. I've been waiting for this article, an article like this, to help us make that connection and to tell it in this very specific way. But I don't know. I mean, if you had to speculate a little bit six months, 12 months down the road, when we're still going to be dealing with this, right. what might the impacts be? I mean, you know, we are very, we tend to be pretty death phobic and we tend to be kind of grossed out by dead bodies um, in our culture. And I think this isn't helping. <laughs> I yeah. think that it may have a very negative effect and sort of keeping things even more hidden. I mean, that is what we we actually really do. Um, um, with death, you know, we don't we don't tend to tend to the dead ourselves, um, with some exceptions. And you know, there's ritual washing. Muslims do it, and and Jews do it. And um, but mostly we hand it over to other people. And I think in this being so hidden, and I'm so grateful for Philip Montgomery's photographs of this. They're so important. It's so important to see inside those trailers. Mm -hmm. I mean, not in a gory or, um, way, but just we need to know what's happening. And mm -hmm. we need to make it real to people who are living in parts of the country where they don't believe it's nearly as real as it is. Um, and so, you know, what that part felt 
you know, photography and photojournalism is so important in these times to be able to describe that and see that and be the eyes where we can't be, be the eyes where print reporters, and, you know, New York Times doesn't let many reporters out of their, <laughs> out of their homes to go report right. on this. So it's, it's really important. And I do think one of the risks, you know, on the upside, maybe we'll invent new rituals that will bring us closer to death in some ways. But right now I feel like it's, it is very hidden. We are not seeing the bodies. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's one of the ways we reckon with disasters and with loss is by, you know, so I love that you um, read an obituary is like, this has to be personalized, that this isn't just numbers, that these, you know, these are the stories here and not just bodies and body bags. Something you just said is really important in these times. I wish it wasn't, but it seems much more than I had even anticipated. Do you remember after Sandy Hook and there was the this sort of Sandy Hook truth conspiracy thing going on that somehow all of the Sandy Hook um, disaster had been made up by the government as a false flag operation to take guns from citizens and things like that. And, and, and we dismissed that sort of thing at our peril, I think. And part of it has to do with, again, like, well, one of the things the truthers said was, well, we didn't see we didn't see the bodies, so it didn't happen. And I've been worried right. about that with this disaster too, because again, the nature of it, it's private, it's dangerous, um, everything that you write about in the story, and yet the absence of the body again, maybe stokes some of those worst impulses in certain parts of our society that are getting a little too much attention right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, if you live in New York City, you hear the sirens all the time, right? And that's a very different, or at least you were hearing them all the time. And that, again, has a immediacy to it. It's not the same as the bodies. I mean, I, you know, and I hear, and I like, I totally get it. I, a bunch of people said, you know, I can't read this story right now. I can't. Um, and I think you have to sort of, <laughs> um, take in what you can take in when you're able to, but, but the larger message, I mean, I think that's really right. That not sort of bearing witness on some level, on a societal level um, to what's going on is, um, has the potential to be very damaging. You're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today with Maggie Jones from the New York times. Maggie, you had a piece out in pre COVID times must seem like a long time ago now, maybe in December, in which you mm -hmm. talked about changes in some funeral practices in America, even bringing them inside the home. Can you, first of all, can you imagine two more different assignments than, <laughs> no, the, than those? <laughs> it had um, December and January to run, and by, you know, by the time, by March, we couldn't have run that story because it's near I, impossible to do those funerals. I really, this is the history professor and me giving reading assignments, but I'm telling everyone, read those two pieces side by side because it really marks out two sides of our culture that are almost unimaginable standing alone and you bring them together and it's really, I mean, you've got a book there between those those yeah. two pieces, but can you talk about that that earlier piece and yeah. so, what some of those trends were? Um, 
I got very interested in this, um, you know, as opposed to the photo essay being sort of a response to a pandemic and needing to do something really quickly. I got into this, that story about um, home funerals um, had been sort of brewing in my mind for probably over a decade. Um, and it came about for me because when my father died, which was actually 16 years ago, we kept him at home after he died. My sister's Buddhist and she um, asked if we could just keep him at home overnight. It never would have occurred to me that something like that would be useful, that I would wanna do that. I certainly wanted to be there when my father died. Um, and it, it, I found it incredibly moving and mm. incredibly powerful. And so, I just over the years, I told people a story and why it was meaningful and why it let time slow down and I didn't have to say goodbye to all of him. You know, it's not that his body was the most important part, but you know, it's my father, his body, it's just, it's the person who picked me up as a kid and cheered yeah. me on and all those things. And so um, I started reading about um, death midwives or home funeral guides and what they do really, it's, it's a, hearkening back to what we did before there were funeral directors, mm -hmm. um, uh, before the civil war mostly. And we took care of, we took like we did, just like we canned, you know, our strawberries, we, we took care of our dead at home. And, um, and there were a lot of reasons for giving it some time. I mean, that was, you know, people came by, um, there was a fear that the body wasn't dead immediately and you wanted to make sure they were really dead before you buried them. But there was something in the mourning process that I think was really slowed down by it. And, and, and I'm interested in that because I'm interested in why we are so, um, feel so ghoulish about mm. dead bodies when, you know, five minutes before they were alive and they were our mother and now they become something like, ah, I can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. So, so these home funeral guides, the whole idea is really that we should be able to do this on our own. And, um, but home funeral guides sort of help you through it. So I sort of followed a family and a home funeral guide um, who kept their mother at home and bathed her and dressed her and had people come over. And if they wanted to go see her in the back bedroom where the air conditioning was on to slow down decomposition and she had dry ice under her and all that. Um, uh, that they could do that. And, mm. you know, it's a small, but I think important movement on the whole, if we just leave out um, the pandemic for a minute um, in sort of helping people who want to, to sort of have more time with the body and to create rituals around that. How you do that now, um, I'm in touch with um, Heidi Boucher, who's the home funeral director that I followed and she's done one, I think non-COVID person since then. You can't, I mean, I'm sure some home funeral guide would tell me that they've got some ways to do it, but it's a very complicated thing to try and pull off, especially because the idea is you have usually often more than 10 people, sometimes maybe not around the body and with the body and maybe having a small funeral or singing songs and all those things that we just can't do now. Right. Um, um, and, you know, and when I say I sort of worry about what this might do in terms of us not being able to reckon with um, death and dead bodies, you know, and how a pandemic 
pushes us away from the dead body um, is really a contrast to what home funeral guides are after. I mean, I don't think they would make any argument like, oh yeah, let's be doing this for COVID bodies anyway. They're really responsible, but, um, but it is very different. But that broader cultural shift that you were putting your finger on there about um, somehow people growing more and more distant from the body or this sort of like, uh, you know, light switch goes, when death happens, it's like, well, instantly that's no longer recognizable right. to me. So you're saying that movement was tapping into some real anxiety around that or some, some desire to go back to an earlier time in which it was easier to, to close, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, Nobody's studied, and I don't want to make any assumptions about, you know, is it psychologically healthier? Also, because I think we're all so different about it. it's sure. like it's an option. It's not an option for everybody. You know, lots of people said to me after that story, nice, but no thanks. And I felt like after that story, oh yeah, people, you better know that, you know, <laughs> I want to be left alone. Actually, I don't, what I really feel like is it's the mourner's decision. But um and that was true with this mother. She didn't care. She said, I'm going to be dead. But if this is what my children and my husband want, then I want them to have the power to be able to do that. Um, so there is a movement toward that. Um, you know, it's, it's small and it's significant in terms of what it says and what it stands for. But, um, you know, it's in pockets. It's more commonplace in California than maybe any other state in the country. Um, um, but you know, and I, and again, I don't know how this is going to impact this because we're not going to be able to do home funerals for quite a while. Well, as you say, it's, it's going to be harder than ever. And also all of the uncertainties around COVID-19 in the United States compared to most other countries, even just finding out um, if people died of that. Right. 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 right? And mean, do you want to take the right, do you take the risk? And, you know, what, one of the things, um, and it, a little bit goes back to what I was saying, um, Lou Folio, the son of Phil Folio, who's in the lead, um, talked about and sort of not having the, the pressure and all the accoutrements of funerals. And there was some relief in that. In my home funeral story, a woman talked about that very much. She'd lost her son to a drug overdose. And what she didn't like about funerals is this idea of they tell you when to sit down. They tell you when to stand up that you're not really supposed to break down in hysterics and depending on your culture and that, you know, having the body at home allowed her to just be with her son for longer and sob and leave the house and come back to the house and not have an outsider tell you or the, mm -hmm. or the community tell you, here's the funeral culture in the United States and this is how you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, we could come back to something about, okay, we, what are the parts, like Lou Folio says, what are the parts that work about right. funeral culture and what don't? And maybe this is a time to sort of reassess culturally or just as individuals, okay, well, what, was actually in some ways better about just having 10 people when my father was buried than um, having, you know, 300 people at a large Italian mass. I, that's such a remarkable insight. I mean, it's only, I've been, I've heard people making, you know, having discussions about that, about like, well, when I get back to the office, we're going to do things differently, but we're going to know which meetings we need to have and which ones we don't need to have. And I, and I've heard people have similar sort of 
conversations. I mean, obviously a moment like this being experienced societally all together all at once, there's going to be um, some rethinking on just about everything we do yes. in our lives. So why not this too? You know, right. I mean, I think that's right. absolutely right. We've got about 10 minutes left and I wanted to actually, um, I have a couple other questions. I have a lot more questions for you, but one, I want to ask you about a piece you wrote in 2016. So um, you wrote this piece about uh, Guatemala, uh, the secrets in Guatemala's bones. And you tell the story here of Freddie Pecorelli, Pecorelli. Pecorelli, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's an extension um, back of themes which are clearly important to you around the kinds of stories one can tell about the body that, and death. And in this case, in a much more forensic way. And, you know, we live in a sort of CSI time. People get very excited about the sort of uh, culture of forensics, but boy, you really followed a really important, interesting story about violence. I, it's such a, I, again, I really recommend people to read the story, but could you just tell us a little bit about that story and how you landed on it? So, um, Freddie and uh, um, his group, um, FAFG, um, they're forensic anthropologists. They're amazing. Um, they are basically exhuming bodies from the Civil War as a means for a few things. Um, they return, you know. In Guatemala. In Guatemala. In Guatemala. I'm yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah, Guatemala. Yeah. Um, not during the American Civil War. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> that would be interesting. That but, would um, be interesting too, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, after 30 years, their bones um, with some pieces of cloth or clothing, um, and they return those bones to the families, which, um, you know, for all the people say, oh, well, it's just a body when your loved one goes missing for 30 years and you don't know, you know, you've heard rumors or you hope that maybe he ran off with somebody and he's living in Mexico or something somehow he can't find, you know, your mind tells you all the please, anything, but the reality that bringing bones home is really significant and they have funerals and they're as if they died yesterday. And, um, and they're, but they're also really importantly used um, in legal cases. Um, so I was writing mostly about um, this mass killing um, by the military of 500 um, civilians and, um, and this man that I, I mean, I read about a couple different families, but, but he was in this, it was at a military base. Um, and so, you know, that case is actually still in the courts, but so they're, they're, you know, kind of, a um, reconciliation with the family, but it's also the larger picture about bringing military officials to justice, which is not so easy in Guatemala. Uh, this, it reminds me of the work of Eden Medina. I don't know if you know her. She's a historian at Indiana University and she's been working about, talking about the Pinochet regime. Right. And the importance of doing this kind of post-dictatorship, post-authoritarian forensics. Um, and yet all of the, you know, sort of trauma the trauma after the trauma, as you said, that it that it brings up, and then it it puts right on the table whether or not a family actually wants, if it's safe for a family to pursue justice, if they want to pursue justice. Right. So, I mean, there's a sort of obvious question I should have asked at the beginning, which is, how do you do this reporting? How do you take care of yourself in in this kind of reporting, physically and mentally and emotionally? 
don't know the answer to that question. So what, I, yeah, I mean, asking you, know, you to give up a trade secret here. Sorry. No, no, no there's no trade secret. <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't drawn to this. I'm very drawn. Um, I'm very drawn to people's stories. I'm not scared of writing about death. Um, I can say that I'm not terribly sorry that I was only on FaceTime for the embalming um, at the Faranga Brothers. And, um, and you know, what I, I have gone through, Columbia um, Journalism School has a great um, uh, dark fellowship, which is for journalists who report on traumatic, things and what actually most of what I learned from that was how to interview people who've gone through serious trauma but but I am aware of thinking about self-care you know I tend to hold it together while I'm talking to people and sometimes at the end of the day I'm just like I'm wondering why I'm so fried um but you know I think one of the things that's important to me and this is sort of this is about self-care in terms of my own values is that is that I try and take these stories about trauma as very slowly in terms of interviewing people, because mm. part of this is not just that I'm witnessing so much trauma is I want to be respectful of people who are opening up their souls to me. And so I think part of coping is feeling like, okay, I'm not going to push too hard on this. I may never push on this because you know, either I know or I can tell quickly that this is too hard. And sort of learning over the years when to back off is really important for me. Um, and, but I don't have any fabulous answer to how, I mean, I, I think I'm actually, I'm both sort of a fairly emotional person, but I can, in the reporting process, I, I can be, um, I mean, first of all, I feel a lot of empathy which is good and bad. And, and, you know, I can, I can get through it. I can sort of look at things pretty toughly in the face, which doesn't mean it doesn't impact me. It doesn't mean I don't go home and sort of weep or, you know, sleep 12 hours because I find it like, oh yeah, okay. There is um, something happening to me in this process too. It seems like it, it, it demands a very special attention to developing that relationship with the, with the interviewees. I mean, I can only imagine how you even pitched this story or maybe you had already been thinking about, you couldn't have been thinking about a COVID-19 story, but maybe. No. And actually I, I, because I'd done some stuff on funerals, they had wanted me to do a story on funeral directors, but then Philip Montgomery on his own was with the photo department working on these um, photos. So he really was there first. Um, and, you know, in terms of, I thought you were going to ask about pitching it to families themselves, but, you know, the families that typically want to talk have some sense of mission in this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's like, we want people to get this. And I often find, especially for stories around trauma, that's necessary because I don't want to, there are other cases where I will pull teeth to try and get something, but I don't want to do that around trauma. I don't want to re-traumatize somebody by making them tell me something that they are not ready to talk about. I know we're pretty early in this process, but do you have any um, feelings about a memorial or, or memorials here? I've had a chance to talk about this with Jay Aronson and Eddie yeah. Benton and, and others who are really knowledgeable about the role that memorials play. Do you have any any sense of that at this stage? I don't. I'm pretty fixated on Heart Island and um, 
what Heart Island could be as opposed to how it's seen now and how it's seen as a kind of dumping ground and a mm. shameful place. And um, I wanted to write about something about this because I do feel like Heart Island needs to be reclaimed in our imagination. Um, for people who don't know, Heart Island yeah. has been where um, indigent or unidentified people have been. It's a you know, it's a potter's grave site of this little island off the Bronx. Um, it's quite beautiful. I haven't been there, so I've seen lots of videos and photographs. Um, and it has a lot of stigma around it because, you know, it's like there are more and more bodies being buried there, which makes sense during COVID. And the fact that nobody wants to be buried there, I think, I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's the place for a memorial. I think, I think memorials are really important. And, um, and I think, you know, there's so little, right? There's so little national um, grieving that we don't have a president who's setting up the ways for us to grieve mm -hmm. as a country. Um, and I think that's that's gonna be really important in this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, not only the president, strangely, um, has said he, he doesn't grieve. I mean, he's basically said, that's not what I do. Um, so he's made it hard in that sense, but also back to what we were talking about earlier and the importance of this story, we get these numbers. We, we've all become sort of experts without wanting to at looking at models um, and death counts. And, and so bringing back the sort of human, the names, even just seeing the names um, and bringing back that human element is just seems absolutely essential, but so much harder in this disaster than anything I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah. 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 We have to do better around that. I mean, it's, it's, um, and especially when we're, we're talking about this combination that we were talking about early on of people who weren't seen for the last month of their life and who can't be seen again when they're being buried or cremated and, um, and all these rituals are turned upside down that, um, and then we have a part of the country that doesn't really think it is what it is. And so sort of the national, having the national memory and having a monument seems particularly important. Um, and we've done well with that. We have Gettysburg and we have our 9-11 and not that these things aren't complicated and political at times, all that, but they're important. I actually think the thinking with civil war memorials is a really, is a really good idea because they're dispersed all over the country. Right. And this is not a, disaster we're going to be able to remember in one in one right. place right i want to remind people you've been listening to covid calls and tomorrow i'm going to be talking with billy fleming and kate marvel and franco montalto about the green new deal and climate change and covid19 and maggie jones thank you for the work you're doing thank you for taking an hour today to talk to me on covid calls and i can't wait to read your your next story thank you it was a total pleasure i really enjoyed it Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.